If you would turn to the book of Ruth. Tim, start with Genesis and quote the Bible books in order to Ruth. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't want to do that. It's hard. The first one, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Yeah, when everyone says it all at once and you can't really hear anybody, it's really safe to do, isn't it? I love that. Yes. Right there, Ruth. 85 verses this little book has. It's been called the Christmas story of the Old Testament. Um, it's a very interesting book. Let me show you some things, and I'm going to go relatively fast because I, I'm, this is more of an introductory lesson to the book. I think I have way more than I can do in one night, but we'll see. Um, Ruth begins, as was on the video, in the days when the judges ruled. So there is no king, and that's absolutely important because I'm going to tell you what I think the book's about. Let me start with this. It's not a romance between Ruth and Boaz. Seemingly, he might be much older than her. Not that there wouldn't be romance, but that's not what the marriage is about. It's not like our marriages where you fall in love and you're attracted. It's not that kind of thing. It's not a little novella with a happy ending and, and all the things that go on. It's really a story that you need to understand, and you only can understand if you put it in the place of the redemptive narrative of the Bible. Ruth does not make any sense unless you put it in the grand scheme of everything that God is doing before it and afterwards. So it begins with, there's no king. It's the judge's rule. And you know anything about the judges? It's a very, very difficult time. A lot of idolatry, a lot of apostasy, a lot of hardship because of invading forces that God uses to punish his people for their sin. And then the book of Judges says, very much similar at the end of it, in Judges 21-25, much how Ruth starts, there, everyone was doing right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. So they want you to know, and that's why Judges and Ruth are right next to each other in the canon of the scripture, because they're connecting things. Joshua brought Israel out of Egypt, and, or I should say Moses, and then he brought them the rest of the way into the promised land. The Judges were after they'd been there for a while, and they hadn't fully conquered the land. And so now they're going to come into the... Ruth is kind of like in the middle of the judges period. There's no king. A lot of bad things are taking place. And they're waiting for God to fulfill his promise. What promise would you say? Well, thank you for asking. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. One of the prophecies at the end of the first book of the Bible is when he talks about the 12 sons of Jacob... The one being Judah, Judas talked about in verses 8 through 12. It says that one day there will be a scepter in Judah, that there will be a king from Judah and his kingly line will have no end. And there's a promised king. And someday when they get in the promised land, God is going to provide for them a king and it's going to come from Judah. Now, let me tell you, as a little side note, mark this down in your Bible. Have you ever wondered why when you read 1 Samuel, which is right after Ruth, and, right? Why is it that God's people want a king all of a sudden? And why do they get so much trouble for asking for one? It's not that they were in trouble for asking for one. What do you know is the problem after I just talked to you about the prophecy of Genesis 49? Where did the promised king that everybody knew would come from? Where was he, what tribe was he from? Judah, right? What tribe was Saul from? Yes. The problem wasn't they asked for one because they knew it was about time. The problem is, is they ran ahead of God and they chose a guy 
not from the right tribe, but the guy who was the biggest and the tallest and looked the best possible one, like all the worldly kings. He was the biggest dude around, head and shoulders bigger than everybody. So Saul was the wrong guy from beginning to end. He was the wrong one. They needed to have the king that would come from the Messianic line of Judah. So, what do you get at the very last thing? Remember the last thing? It's strange. Why would you end a book with the genealogy? I mean, that's what you read when you want to go to bed tonight and you, you, know, and you can't get to bed, so you read the genealogy. It makes you sleepy because you know it's not a lot going on, right? Wrong. Our genealogies are hugely important. Here's the purpose, I believe, the main purpose of the book of Ruth. It is an apologetics book to defend the fact that King David, David himself, should be the promised king from Judah that has the right to rule, not Saul. All right? So let me show you why and how that's true. Now, I want you to sit back, listen to me talk, but I want you to marvel at all that God does to provide and protect and to bring his promises to pass. Because if you're not encouraged about what you're going through in your life and what you face, and will God keep his word, and will he provide and protect you, you have to be of a different heart and mind after you hear these stories. So this is a genealogy. The last word, the very last word in Hebrew in the book of Ruth is this, David. It's the very last word. Why? Because judges, no king, Ruth starts out, no king. You know what by the end of the book is? King. The king. The king that Jesus, quote, quote, on one, is the greater David. He's the son of David. He calls himself that. In fact, read the genealogy of Matthew when it talks about the Christmas story. Matthew 1, 1. Jesus, the first thing before any of his, any of his genealogy physically, you know what it says to him? It says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes into all the people. So the first thing Jesus is, is the son of David. Why? Because here's what we have to, this is what God did to preserve the messianic line according to the promise that it would come from Judah. Now watch what he had to do to get that done. David was the descendant of an illegitimate union. All right? Let me tell you a little story. Remember the Leverite law? The Leverite law, according to the Torah, it was mentioned here, it was a practice in the Israel, it's commanded that if you have a relative, you, you have a son, and his, he dies, okay, someone in that family has to be the very closest next relative, has to marry his wife to keep the name going and the tribe going. So that was absolutely, so Judah, he has sons, right? He has three sons. One of his sons' name is Onan. Onan marries a woman by the name of Tamar, okay? He dies, right? And so he has to have a brother to take up that. So he, and his brother refuses. They, he dies as well because God strikes Onan dead because he won't carry out the, the, the Leverite law. And then Tamar thinks her life is over because none of his sons will do what they're supposed to do, so she stands by the side of the road, pretends to be a prostitute, tricks Judah himself to come in to her, and she has a baby by him. He wants to kill her, thinking she was pregnant by someone else, and when she says, oh, is this your staff? Because this is the guy. Oh, yeah, you're more righteous than me. So that was kind of a startling thing, right? But she has a son by Judah, right? But even though he's a legitimate guy, they're not married. So that son that they have... 
is illegitimate, and his name is Perez. In Genesis, the tribe of Judah is shamed by Judah's actions and immorality. Ruth brings them out and redeems the, the tribe of Judah to turn them back into a great tribe again. And how does that happen? Because the main guy, Judah himself, the tribe's named after him, he will not fulfill the Leverite law. Boaz does. So what he refused to do and was wicked at doing, Boaz does. And he redeems back out of shame and brings honor back to Judah. And that's how that story... And so the problem is is that if you have a person who is illegitimate in your ancestry, you cannot hold the office of king, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 2, you cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23:2. stay with me, talks about your political office. So if you have an illegitimate son in your line, from that person on, you have to wait to the 10th generation to have somebody be in political office, i.e. king. All right? So count the generations. Look at the end of the book, chapter 4 of Ruth, and verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez, fathered Hezron, Hezron, Ram, and blah, 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 all the way down. Count them for yourself. Ten generations. So here was the problem. How do you have David become king even though he's of the tribe of Judah when he has an illegitimate person who was born out of wedlock into his generation? Well, you never could have anyone until David came. He is the 10th generation. And so he has solved, quote unquote, that problem. But there's another problem because the Torah in the very next verse in Deuteronomy 23, 3 says this. No foreigner shall ever be king of Israel. And if you have a foreigner in your genealogy, also you have to wait to the 10th generation. And it exclusively, read the verse, it says exclusively if you are from Moab. <laughs> All right? Because it says when Israel came out of the Egypt into the promised land, the Moabites, instead of giving them bread and water, wouldn't give them anything. And so they started to starve because the Moabites wouldn't help them, and God cursed them for that. And because of that, the Torah says, no Moabite can ever be a citizen in Israel. No one. So Boaz legitimatizes Ruth, right? How? Because he marries her and brings her into covenant family of God. So she no longer is legally a Moabitess. She becomes a proselyte into Judaism and becomes an Israelite. In fact, read Paul in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. He says a true Jew is not one outwardly, but one inwardly. And so, so uh, Ruth it actually becomes an Israelite. So the two biggest problems that he had to overcome was he had an illegitimate child in his family, and he was his his great grandmother's great 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 was a foreigner, and they were able to overcome both of those and still keep Torah. And David becomes the first possible person in his line that could become king. Now that is incredible that all of those details, all of those people, that Boaz comes at the right time so that David could become king. Because why? 
because David brings in the Messiah. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, and his line brings in King David, and that line brings in Jesus the redeemer. So Jesus becomes the true David and the true Boaz. If you read a little further in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, the genealogy, there are numerous women in the genealogy, which is unheard of. But why does Matthew put it in there? Yes, he was elevating women, but maybe more than that is Tamar is mentioned, and so is Ruth, right? One was the illegitimate, and one was the foreigner, and God overcame all of that, keeping his promise, keeping the law, and still bringing it all to pass. God did all of those things not through supernatural events, but through providential guidance. Now see, in our day and age, we are in the same place. God doesn't usually break through in our lives and do supernatural things that cannot be explained by science or nature. He doesn't usually do that. He can, but that's not how he acts normally. You know how he normally brings everything to pass that he promised is providentially. And so I want you to think about Just think in your mind tonight what circumstance, situation, difficulties you might be facing. And we're always thinking, God, do this great thing. And we pray, God, would you just do this in some big thing that only God could do? And there's nothing wrong with those types of prayer for sure. But know this, how does God normally work? Over time, providentially. He works behind the scenes when you don't think he's doing anything, in fact, you may pray that and have prayed it recently. God, what are you doing? Why don't you come to my aid? Do you hear me? Are you going to act in my behalf? And we begin to get patient and patient. Why? Because what is God doing? But when you read the book of Ruth, you're going to find Naomi has to completely change her opinion about what God is doing and what her circumstances mean before she really gets it. In fact, Strangely enough, you might think Ruth gets it before Naomi does. And I want to challenge you tonight, don't, as, as the uh, song says, don't think of God in the feeble sense that he's not doing anything when your situation doesn't change right away. God is working providentially behind the scenes. He will keep his promises to you, and he will do what he has said that he would do. Now, We're going to take that little bit of a basis tonight, and I want to explore one little theme, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you. In Ruth chapter 2, if you look there, in verse 12, and then also chapter 3 in verse 9, two times in this book, but all over the Old Testament and a little in the New Testament, this little phrase is used, or something similar to it, under his wings. I asked my wife, she still remembered, I won't sing it for you because that would be scary. Um, but there's a song, the old hymn, Under His Wings. You ever heard that? Remember the old hymn? Do you ever sing that? I grew up singing that song. Under His Wings, I Shall Safely Abide Forever. That's how the last little phrase goes. But Under His Wings, now I want to read them to you. It says, Ruth 2, 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward he's saying to her, Boaz saying to Ruth, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So you get the idea, when you're under someone's wings, you're being protected by them. They're providing for you. He says it again, or it's said again, chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, 
First time about the wings, God's wings was said from Boaz to Ruth. The second time from Ruth to Boaz. It says in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's the Hebrew word goel. You're the kinsman redeemer. You can save Naomi's family, of which I'm a part of. So to spread the wing over someone else was to form a covenant bond with them. In fact, I'm going to show you here, it's a picture, a poetic picture of marrying someone. Hold your finger here and turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. God is talking about Israel. And he passed them by when they were being born and how nasty and bad it was. And he says, verse 8, When I passed by you again and saw you, God talking to Israel, behold, you were at the age for love, not a baby anymore. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. The, co- the corner of your garment. And the corner is the same word for wings. God put his covering over them, the corners of it, and it means he was going to marry them. He was going to take Israel to be his bride, similar to what Jesus does when he takes the church as his bride. Now, what does that mean? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Keep turning with me. told you it's going to get fast. Let me give you a little thematic survey of wings in the Bible. Genesis 1-2, at the creation it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was wings. It's hovering. So the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God has wings hovering over creation, right? He's protecting it. He's shaping it. He's forming it into what he wants it to be. The exact same phrase in Hebrew is used. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, Deuteronomy 32.11, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord also guided them. So God spreads his wings out over Israel, and he protects them, and he guides them, and provides for them. Okay? Now, you don't have to turn on these next two unless you want to. 1 Samuel 15 and 24 tells stories of David when he's being chased by Saul. Now, I'm going to test your knowledge. You remember when Saul, David was hiding in the back of the cave? Saul goes in there, forgive me for saying, to go to the restroom. And he goes in there, and he falls asleep. And David sneaks up on him. And all the guys in his group want him to kill him. But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do to him? What? He cuts off the what? The corner of his tasseled garment. Everybody wore these, right? They did in Jesus' day too. He cut off the corner. The corner came to mean the wing. Every Jewish man had a, it had a hole in the top. You pulled it over front and it had a back on each of the corners, two in the front and two in the back, four corners. They were called the wings. So when he went in and cut his wing off, you say, well, why is that? Well, he could kill him. Why would he do that? Because the, that represented his political power. And he wanted him to know that he knew that he wasn't to be the king that David was. And so he cut his corner off and took it from him, right? 
because he wanted him to know that God's... Now, David repented later because he thought in his conscience that was not right for me to do. God decides that. So David said, I'm waiting for God to do that, right? Now, actually, that's 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 15, you remember when uh, Saul was waiting to give the sacrifice at Gilgal, and he waited for Samuel, and Samuel said, don't do the sacrifice, wait for me. I'm the priest, you're not, it's against Torah, you can't do it, so wait for me. He waited, he waited days for him, and after days, the people were getting upset, they're about to go into battle, and they can't go into battle unless they give a sacrifice to God, and it's going to be a disaster. Where is Samuel? He hasn't shown up. So impatient as Saul always was, he decides to do the sacrifice himself. Of course, as soon as he's done with it, Samuel shows up. And he says, what is this? Not only do you do the sacrifice, but you spared Agag and you spared the rest of them, right? All that stuff. He says, why did you do that? He goes, you have not obeyed God. Therefore, God is going to take the kingdom away from you. And remember what God, what, Sa- what Saul did? What did he do? He reached out to Samuel and grabbed what? The corner of his garment and he tore off the wing. And Samuel says, and rightly so, because God has torn the kingdom away from you today. So the corners represented his character. Now, think real quickly. What other thing or person has four wings in the Old Testament? The priests have them on their garment. The king wore them. The men wore them because they were instructed to in Numbers 15 37 to 41. What other thing has four wings? Say it out loud. Yes, the cherubim. What is the job of a cherubim? And what are the two most famous cherubims? And what are they doing in heaven and on the Ark of the Covenant? What do they do? Remember what Satan is called? What is his description in Ezekiel 14? He is the anointed cherub that covers. There's the mercy seat, which is the presence of God, and two cherubim have their wings spread out like this, one on each side, and they cover up. They are protectors of God's holiness. Satan was as close to God as you could possibly. He was the anointed. In other words, there were two of them, and he was the one above the other one. He was the one closest to God, protecting his holiness, and he's the one who defiled it in that sense by disobeying God, right? But cherubim and then Revelation have four wings. And they defend and they protect and they cover God and they're close to him. That's why kings wore them. They were to be cherubim-like. They were supposed to live their life in God's presence. They were supposed to be holier than anybody else. And they were supposed to have those tassels in their hands. And today, if you have a, a, a Jewish prayer shawl, they have tassels. They're blue because blue was the heavens and it's supposed to remind you that you're on earth but you live for God in heaven. And you have these tassels and they are knotted and braided in a certain way. And when you put them in your hands and you rub them like this, you're supposed to say, and I can go through it all with you, the knots and the braids all are symbolic of things. But they're supposed to make you think that who God is and my obedience to him in Torah, and you're supposed to remember all that. But those wings are for that purpose. So put that in your head and turn to Psalms. Psalms 17. We're going to go really fast now. Psalm 17. And I'm going to start reading these verses to you. So what are, God has wings. The priest had wings on his garment. The cherubim have wings. 
for protecting, providing. It's covenant love. It, it can represent political kingdoms or a, a bond of marriage. But it always means protection and guarding someone, right? Taking care of them. Psalm 17 and verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, from my deadly enemies who surround me. So it's a prayer. And the prayer was, hide me in the shadow. God, like you had the wings of, you protect me. God, you, I'm under your wings. God, if I'm under your wings, nothing can happen to me. Psalm 36 and verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love has said your covenant love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's refuge. I get my protection there. See, your security is not in your money. It's not in your health. It's not in your job. It's not in your bank account. It's in God under the shadow of his wings. Psalm 57 and verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Psalm 61 and verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. In other words, think about that for a minute. In other words, God, I'm in your tent. I'm in your tabernacle where your presence is. Right? Before they had a temple. God, I'm close to the Ark of the Covenant as I can be because that's where you dwell. Protect me, O God, with your own power and your own might. Psalm 63 and verse 7. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So even though you're surrounded by enemies and things look terrible on the outside, if you are under the shadow of God's wings, you can sing for joy. That puts a different spin, doesn't it? If you're under God's wings, you can face any circumstance and situation possible and still find joy. Psalm 91 and verse 4. I hope you're getting the idea that this was a very common theme that Israelites would have been aware of. Psalm 91 and verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So God is faithful. His word is faithful. And you can take great hope in that promise. Now that's the Old Testament. Ready? How does that help us? Matthew chapter 23. God has wings. Priests had wings. Cherubim had wings. Tassels of their clothes had wings. Jesus has wings. Matthew 23, 37. This is repeated in Luke chapter 4 as well, I mean, Luke chapter 13 and verse 34, if you want to get another rendition of it. He says, and this is right before he just spent time with Zacchaeus and is heading in just on the donkey, right? And, into the, and he's been into Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified soon. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together why? as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
Jesus said, I would have protected you from the Romans. I would have protected you from Satan, sin, hell, and death. I wanted to, but you rejected me. See, I wanted to have, we were married and you have divorced me, Israel, God says. Now, I want to tell you the last story, and that's why I brought you all this far. Luke chapter 8, if you'll turn there and we'll close. I think we're going to make it. Luke 8. You know the story, and depending on what gospel you're reading in, a little girl who's 12 needs healing, and a woman who's had an issue of blood, it's also 12. And the reason why 12 is used, like there are 12 disciples, because it's about forming a new Israel centered around Jesus. And so Israel is pictured in this little girl at 12 needing healing, and also this woman at issue of blood for 12 years. Israel's in sad shape. They need Jesus to come and to heal them. And the story goes that this woman who has the issue of blood, now let me real quick, if you have an issue of blood, it's a personal thing, uh, a feminine thing, she cannot control it. She is considered unclean. Every person she touches, everything she sits on, everything is unclean. She cannot go to synagogue. She cannot buy anything. She cannot go. She is poor, destitute, and imagine for 12 years, that's your life. She's probably lost her family, any touch with them, so it's helped. It's hurt her spiritually, religiously, socially, economically, and possibly every level. It has devastated her. But she comes and she knows that Jesus is coming by. And she knows this scripture, and I'll tell you why I know that. Malachi, hold on, I'll read it for you. The last book in our English version, anyways. It says, in Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, shall be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise, listen to this, with healing in his wings. Healing in his wings. She knows what wings are. Jesus wears the prayer tassels. He has the shawl on. The tassels go down this way and this way. Remember Jesus said Pharisees wear the long, long, long tassels in the, in the, in the public square because they want everybody to know how big they are in the prayer So Jesus has this prayer shawl and it's got tassels on it and it says the crowd is thronging him so strong that day that they can hardly move. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, stop. And they all stop. And and, and the disciples, what, master? Someone has touched me. And Peter, you know, of course, what do you mean someone's touched you? We're in a crowd and everybody's touching you. Are you kidding me? He goes, no, no, no. Power has gone out from me. This woman had got close enough to Jesus and got on the ground where she could reach up and she grabbed his tassel because the prophecy says if the Messiah comes, he'll have healing in his wings. That if all she could do was touch his tassel and get under his wings, that he would heal her. And the Bible says that he raises her up and says, blessed are you, basically, that you had the kind of faith to believe the prophecy because here's what the Bible says, Jesus has wings. All of those passages from creation to Samuel to Ruth, all the way to Jesus. So read back into Ruth this, that Ruth came under the wings of Boaz, Boaz, and he married her, and he redeemed her out of all of her problems 
and the rest of her life she could live under his wings. Can I tell you? Listen, that's you and me. We've been redeemed by the Redeemer from Bethlehem, the greatest Redeemer, the greater Boaz, and that's Jesus. And greater wings than Boaz are ours because Jesus has brought us under his wings if you've received him, and he's your Lord and Savior. Can I tell you this? He has protected you from all the greatest evils, sin and hell and death, and you are his. Let me tell you this. Have you ever heard of arguing from the greater to the lesser? If you're facing and I'm going to put this in perspective, cancer, economic problems, relationship difficulties, see all these things, can I tell you this? Let me argue from the greater. These are all lesser compared to sin and hell and death. Jesus has redeemed us, and here's what he says, right? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God gave Jesus to die for you, to bring you under his wings. Don't you think that he can handle your pressures and your anxieties and your fears? See, they are far less than your sin and hell and death. Far less. And if he has conquered the greatest things with his wings, can't he do the same in all the rest of them? Ask Naomi. Ask Ruth. And they would say to you wholeheartedly, yes. Can I tell you tonight, no matter what you're facing, if you know him, you are under his wings. Now, our part is to believe that and to trust him and to live it out by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have another story from Bethlehem at this Christmas time of the year. We're so thankful that tonight we are under your wings, the wings of Jesus, the greatest redeemer of all. Thank you for redeeming us out of our sin and our shame. You have conquered our greatest problems Father, help us to realize all the other ones we face, although traumatic at times to us, and they are, are nothing in comparison. May we look to you knowing that you have conquered and protected us from all of those things, and you will keep your words and everything else as well. Help us to have that kind of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.